started to get me thinking about the world of fables, how this is a cautionary tale that's just echoes with, with all of these subterfugal ideas underneath it. You know, be careful of what you assume. Nothing is ever at, at the way we think it is. Nothing is ever as it seems. And most, most important of all, the past will never stay buried forever. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends and Fiction podcast. We are so excited to welcome to the show, Nita Prose, the mega best-selling author of The Maid which has sold more than a million copies worldwide and that's been published in more than 40 countries. Now she's back with the mystery guest, which takes us once again into the world of hotel maid Molly Gray, who we all have come to love and who must put her amateur sleuthing skills to the test when yet another hotel guest turns up very, very dead. We couldn't be more excited to have Nita with us today to tell us all about the book. I am Patty Callahan-Henry. And I'm Kristen Harmel. This podcast is even more personal than usual to both Patty and me because we are both published in Canada by Simon & Schuster Canada, where Nita is the vice president and editorial director. In fact, I have known Nita just by email for years, and because she writes under a pseudonym, the maid had already been out for months and had made this huge splash in the publishing world before I realized that she was the one who had written it. I still laugh about the day she emailed me about something else. And as an aside said, you know, I wrote the maid, right? You could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> she, she then texted all of us and I was like, what? And we were all just as surprised, but thrilled too. It is a wonderful thing when someone we know and respect so much in this industry has such huge success. Anita is such a great example of someone whose life's work has centered around publishing other great books. It's no surprise then that she is writing phenomenal books of her own. And let's just for a minute, talk about how phenomenal The Maid was. So The Maid, which was Nita's debut novel, was a number one New York Times bestseller, a Good Morning America book club pick, a number one Canadian bestseller, a Sunday Times bestseller, an Irish Times bestseller, and more and more and more. It's absolutely crazy. So the New York Times said that The Maid, quote, threads a steady needle with intricate plotting, the locked room elements of the mystery, and especially Molly's character, and that The Maid has, quote, real emotional heft. The maid told the story of a hotel maid named Molly Gray, who finds a body in a suite at the fancy Regency Grand Hotel, where she works. And quickly, she becomes the police's main suspect. And the mystery guest picks up where the maid left off. Nita lives in Toronto, 
Ontario, where she's joining us today. So let's bring Nita on and let her tell us more about Molly and the new book. Welcome, Nita. Oh, my goodness. I am so happy to be here with both of you, Patty and Kristen. This is like a strange, weird dream come true to have two (laughs) authors that I publish talking to me. Wait a second. Isn't this supposed to be the other way around? I'm supposed to be asking you the question. (laughs) Well, we love flipping the tables. So here we are flipping the tables. So, Nita, we can't wait to dig in to talk about the Mr. Guest. But first, before we dive into this second novel of yours, let's talk more about Molly. I love Molly. I love her voice. I love her quirkiness. I love her very unique way of taking care of the hotel. And I want to talk about where she came from for you. I remember when we interviewed you for The Maid, you were saying that you heard her voice on a plane after a business trip. So you knew her from the very beginning, and it's so evident that you know her so well. So can you talk to us about that and where she came from for you? I can. You know, I I think we would all agree that sometimes as a writer, things come very, very difficult. And sometimes as a writer, you are bestowed with a gift from the gods. And that's how it felt with the voice of Molly. So I've worked, as you know, in publishing for so very long, and I'm so committed to helping uh, writers like you two and many others, you know, find their biggest audiences and commit their stories to the page. So I became a writer really by accident, at least a fiction. I certainly was doing a lot of ghostwriting in the, in the past of nonfiction. But I was at the London Book Fair, which is, uh, as many of your listeners will know, a place where uh, agents and writers and publishers gather every year. And I was there for SNS for Simon and Schuster Canada. And uh, I stepped out of my hotel to go to a meeting. And when I stepped back in, the maid was cleaning my room. And I completely startled her. And, you know, she looked at me and I looked at her. And the embarrassing part is she had her in her hands my disgusting, sweaty, grotesque track pants, which I had left in a tangled mess on my bed in my rush to get to this meeting because I'd gone for a run that morning. And that's what she was holding in her hands. And she looked at me and I looked at her. We were both startled. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, it is such an intimate and invisible job to be a roommate. You know, she knew so much about me. I had been staying in that room for days. She knew my makeup. She knew my agenda. She knew my shoes. She knew a lot more, let me just say. And I knew (laughs) nothing about her. And it was just one of those funny little flashes that somehow lodges in your brain. And like you said, Patty, a while later, I'm on my plane ride home, many days later, in fact. And that's when I started to hear the voice of a maid. Molly, the maid. It came to me in my head and it was pitch perfect and clean and precise. It was not my voice at all. It was Molly's pitch perfect. And I started to uh, write down what I was hearing on the napkin under my drink because I didn't have any paper. And it became the prologue for the maid. You know, uh, there were a few changes to it in the end, but very, very few. And that was my gift from the gods. Were it only so easy all the time, as we know. (laughs) Anybody who writes. Could you put in a good word for us to those gods? Could you just <laughs> exactly put in a good right. word? 
You all, you'll all have your moment if you haven't had it yet. I suspect you've had a few gifts yourselves. And if not, yes. well, my goodness on the page, it sure looks like you have. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Nita, I'm curious now, returning to Molly's world in the mystery guest, was it as easy to find that voice the second time around? And can you also tell us a little bit about the mystery guest so that we know what to expect? Sure. Well, uh, finding Molly's voice was was fairly easy the second time around. It was sort of like returning to an old home, you know. Oh yeah, mm. I know. I know this wallpaper. I know this floor. I know. I know what she's going to say. I know how she's going to react. So that was um, really lovely to have that sort of tapestry to draw on. But in this novel, what happens is that we're a bit in the future, and Molly is the headmate at the Regency Grand Hotel, the posh five star hotel where she has worked for many years, and uh, lo and behold she has changed a lot and she's grown a lot but alas the hotel is, sort of takes a little a wee step backwards when a world-renowned uh, somewhat reclusive author comes to the Regency Grand newly restored tea room and he's about to make a big announcement and he drops dead very very dead <laughs> on uh, the herringbone floor and alas, here we go again, another mystery results uh, at the hotel, but this one is a little bit different because it's not solved in the present tense. Molly has to return to a time in her past when she was just a child and where her grandmother, her beloved grand, worked many, many years ago as a maid in a reclusive, uh, strange, luxurious, foreboding mansion. And that mansion turns out to be the very same one where J.D. Grimthorpe, the author, who died on the herringbone floor of the Regency Grand, uh, used to live. So clever. It really is. I know. I, I loved it because, you know, the maid was so unique and somehow you managed to, in the way that you told this story to make this feel just as unique, which is an impossible, mm. I mean, that's an impossible thing to do, not only with a second book in general, but with a book that is essentially a sequel. So I I'm curious, The Maid felt very much like a, a standalone to me, not the first book in a series. Was there always an intention of writing a sequel? Um, or was this something that came about? It, okay, okay. Or was this something that came <laughs> about after the success or after you enjoyed getting into Molly's head or, or whatever? So listeners, you can't hear my uh, my head <laughs> shaking back and forth like, no, 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 no. But Kristen and Patty are here laughing because I did not plan this as a series. I could imagine a future, and certainly I suggest there might be a future uh, beyond the life of the maid. But I had to discover that um, once I, it became clear that my publishers wanted more and readers wanted more Molly. And for me, that was a very difficult problem to solve. And I learned a lot about the writing process from that because for me, one of the keys to keep me so interested in the maid was about genre. You know, it was about Frankensteining two things together. On the one hand, a mystery, a very classic cozy sort of um, style, um, a la Agatha Christie. And on the other, a feel-good fiction, uh, a little bit in the style of Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, where we have a character who on the surface seems very prickly. She's a cactus. She's not a plushy, cuddly toy. And somehow, through the course of the story, we hope, if I've done my uh, job right, we come to love her. And it was Frankensteining those two genres together that allowed me to find the combustion of the maid. Mm. And so 
For the second one, I went through the same searching process. I'm like, okay, I know this one is different. On the one hand, there is the mystery. That is going to be what's the same. But what is the new element? What is the new genre that is going to forge this story and give me a new creative tapestry to work from? And in the end, it became a sort of gothic fairy tale, you know, the secrets of an old house that come to the fore. And, you know, I searched a while for it, but again, gift of the gods. I was um, I was in England again. I should always go there looking for ideas, <laughs> always. I, I, you know? Yeah, you too, Patty. Absolutely. It's a fertile place for stories, isn't it? I always call it story soaked. I always feel like the English world, the British world is story soaked. Like everywhere you look, you're like, if you could just nab it while you're walking by, right? I think that's true. There's something about um, of the years of history being right below the surface that, that for writers is highly intriguing about that place. So I was in England, I was on tour, and I uh, ended up outside of Brighton in a small town called Lewes, uh, where there is a castle. And I went to the museum after visiting the castle. And on the second floor, I came across the strangest exhibit I have ever seen. Okay, so there's a glass case. And inside the glass case is the mummified body of a rat. Really gross. And beside it, a single silver spoon. Ooh. Okay. So, and then there's a little caption that tells the story of what on earth this thing is. And as it turns out, long ago, before this castle was renovated, there was a maid servant who worked there. And she was accused of sealing a piece of silverware and she was frog marched out the door. And then many, many years later, when the renovators came, this is all true, people, it's all true. When the renovators came and they opened up the castle and they started, you know, taking it apart, inside one of the walls, they found a rat's nest. And inside that rat's nest was the mummified body of a rat and that silver spoon. So far too late, that poor maid who was blamed for being a thief and a rat and the worst, well, she was exonerated. And that started to get me thinking about the world of fables, how this is a cautionary mm -hmm. tale that's just echoes with, with all of these subterfugal ideas underneath it. You know, be careful of what you assume. Nothing is ever at, at the way we think it is. Nothing is ever as it seems. And most, most important of all, the past will never stay buried forever. Uh, I love so, all of this. And I love how you lace that into the novel too. <laughs> yeah. So that was how I found it, that, that I would, uh, this time I would mix this mysterious, um, you know, classic whodunit with the notion of uh, a fairy tale, of a gothic fairy tale that takes place in an old mansion and where we revisit the, the idea of what a maid is, what she does, and the peculiar difficulties and trials she might experience in such a place. And that these two things would have to meld and inform each other for the, for the story to evolve. Well, you know that I like mixing fairy tales and stories. I do. So <laughs> I love your books as a result of that. <laughs> so I always feel like that the undergirdings of mythologies and fables and legends and stories we told kids to either scare them straight or keep them on the path, like to meld that with your story, especially a true one, 
chef's kiss. All right. So let's talk about the massive success of The Maid. We talked in your introduction about how well that book has sold, but it's not just that. Even from the opening lines, we know that we have met someone we want to spend time with. We want to be in her world. You called her prickly. I would call her endearing. But people genuinely love Molly and this world you've created. It was a finalist for the Edgar Award. It was named a best book of the year by Reader's Digest, The Washington Post, The Guardian, Glamour, Elle, Pop Sugar, Newsweek, Mental Floss, and more. Stephen King called it excellent and totally entertaining. The most interesting, he used the same word I did, endearing main character in a long time. And we know that it has been read by well over a million people. So my question is, with all of that, how has that level of success affected you when you sat down to write the sophomore novel? Was it harder? Was there too much expectation? Or were you just like, hey, Molly, I'm here. Let's go. (laughs) Writing isn't easy. And writing a second book, as both of you know, is its own cruel, uh, exquisite torture. So no, I will not lie and say, oh, it's no big deal. No, it was very, very, very difficult because you do have that burden of expectation. For me, yep. the thing that terrified me the most was that I, I, I managed to have people feel for Molly and mm. to connect to her um, in important ways. For me, a book, a really important book is one, and I can say this about so many of both of your books. I'm just looking at your bookshelves back there. I'm like, yes, all of those books I want to hold to my heart. You know, and I think that's the measure of a really good book when you want to press it to your chest because it means something to you. And I felt, you know, a burden. I would say to the fans of Molly, Ah, I was like, oh, my God, if I don't get her right the second time, not only am I going to do her a disservice, I'm really going to disappoint the readers out there who want more of her. So the question was, can I deliver more of her without delivering less? And that is a very peculiar writing challenge that I had to figure out. And um, in the end, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with, with what I have on the page. And let me tell you, if I was not pleased... There is no way we would be having this discussion because I uh, I told myself and I was very clear with my agents and with my editors and my publishers, if I am not happy with what we have at the, uh, in the second kick of the can situation, no one is ever going to see it. I'm not going to do readers a disservice by publishing something like that. that is second rate. And, you know, there's times when we know when we're being derivative and second rate and we can make a choice to let it be out there in the world or say, I'm either going to get, get a story I care about as much or not. And you found one you cared about just as much. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Nita, we've also heard that the maid is in development as a major motion picture produced by and starring Florence Pugh. That is so exciting. What can you tell us about that? Well, um, you know, Hollywood has been uh, a bit slow this year for obvious reasons. <laughs> yes, and tell me about so it. So <laughs> the, the strike has certainly impaired our our push forward, but that is okay and completely understandable. Um, writers certainly deserve, you know, to invest in their rights, um, and I believe very strongly about that. Um, but I am pretty excited that Universal Pictures uh, holds the rights to the film. 
and um, we're trucking along. We do have a manus. We do have a screenplay, and uh, I am looking forward to next steps. But the question is, when will those next steps happen? And yeah. I promise you, readers, that on my website, needaprose.com, as soon as there is something to mention, I will I will post it there. But so far, uh, there there's nothing quite new. Understandable. Oh, I can't wait to see this on the screen. I know it's going to be um, so great. You casually mentioned this before, but we're going to take we're going to dive a little deeper. You deepened her backstory in the mystery guest. Now, in in the maid, we met her living with her grand. Her grand has passed away. We know a little about her, but this one, in fact, Molly's own memories of childhood are one of the keys to solving the murder. So, can you talk to us about having Molly have such a rich backstory and even making her grandmother such a large part of the world, even though Gran has passed away? For me, this novel, you know, is, is so often called a mystery, but the most important part to me about the first novel was that it was a mis- It was a mystery about grief. <laughs> Finally, it was, ah. it was a, an, a journey and a story that was all about the loneliness and um, the sadness that comes with losing someone so fundamental to your life. And for, mm. for Molly, that was Gran. Gran was her compass. Gran was her everything. Gran taught her to be. Um, but when we encounter Molly in the second book, she's further along in lots of ways. She's able to navigate much better for herself. She's grown tremendously. But I did sort of wonder, you know, what would make Molly the way she is? And can I invest in that more? How, how did she really become the person she is today when we meet her in The Maid and then later in The Mystery Guest? And at one point in her life, does she start to really think about her own past and how she has yeah. become who she is? And that's, you know, with this growth in her that we see in the second book, she starts to think beyond herself and to go back to thinking about Graham in some fundamental ways. And we go beyond just what, you know, she experiences in the hotel and the trials and travails that are happening in her own life. And she starts to think about all of those sacrifices that Grand might have made for her. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of Grand, I, I think she's one of the elements of both novels that I loved so much because without Gran and even without Mr. Preston, Molly's life, I think, would have been very, very different. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of having a safe place to land, the kind of place that Gran gives Molly, especially for someone like Molly, who's neurodivergent and therefore might have a bit of a harder time traveling through life? Yes. Um, you know, I think gr- she was so lucky. Molly is so lucky to have a somebody like Gran. And for me, that was a little gift that I wanted to give the reader. You know, Mm. I am so lucky in my real life to have had my mother who's passed away many years ago now, but I, she is so present to me every single day. She talks to me all the time. Um, You know, I hear her voice constantly in my head and she is a navigational force to me even now and she's been gone for over eight years oh wow um and now she has a very different voice it's not sort of that english touch voice my mother was french canadian and 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 a really um outgoing outrageous personality but her voice 
you know, and very much like Rand, she was somebody who could love unconditionally and loved her family beyond all reason and would do anything to see them thrive and to protect them. So it was that that I was trying to offer the reader. Whether you've had a grand in your life or you've had somebody like my mother, I wanted them, them to have that gift of an all-knowing matriarch and to have that sort of echo in their minds about what that would sound like yeah, and, and how it could actually be a guide for you in the future. If you can, you know, find the life even in absence as Molly mm. does. And I'm fascinated with that notion that the dead speak to us. And I don't mean it in a, you know, um, spooky wahaha crystals and <laughs> magic sort of way. way. Yeah. I mean that we have the powers in our own minds to create life where it no longer exists and to directionally change the course of our lives by listening to those voices that we deliver to ourselves. Oh, what but a beautiful that they thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, what a, just what a beautiful way to put it. And I feel like that bleeds through on every page. Yeah. And so, I think yeah, the- so absence, absence Beyond Death is something that I think I really wanted yeah. to explore further in the second yeah. book. It's there in the first book. But actually, um, in the second book, I think we go a lot deeper into what, what that really is like yeah. and how life can be sustained even beyond the grave, how that, how a voice can echo and have prominence. Mm, love that. Well, and also you can hear the things they once said, right? Yes. But it's relevant for the moment you're in. It's, so it's astounding. It makes me think, God, I hope I said all the right things to my kids. Yes. Um, <laughs> so Nita, you've worked for years on the editorial side of things. With writers like Paula Hawkins, Joy Fielding, Ruth Ware, one of my favorites, Kate Morton, and many more. NPR specifically notes in the review of The Maid, Nita Prose is vice president and editorial director at Simon & Schuster Canada. One reason why her mastery of voice and plot is so assured. She's clearly an excellent editor. So having worked with you... And your team, Kristen and I are inclined to agree. Definitely. But I need to know that how has being an editor for so many years guided your writing process? How do you flick that editor off your shoulder or out of your ear to be creative? I would say that, you know, first off, I credit my writers, the ones that have allowed me to work with them through 20 years in publishing. I credit them with teaching me everything I ever needed to know about writing, about publishing, and the role of narrative in our lives. Oh, wow. And without them, I would be nothing and nowhere. It has been really the most wonderful, awe-inspiring journey to work with other people on their stories and to help them deliver them to the page. And, you know, some people go to writing school, some people, uh, you know, go to uh, fancy master's programs or Iowa school. The best school for me was working with other writers. You know, they you, you guys have taught me everything I needed to know. And so I feel like I came in very, very well prepared for a debut novel that maybe is at a different place than a lot of debuts because I have participated in a storytelling journey so many other writers along the way. 
Is it hard to flick that editor off your shoulder? Mm. Need of the editor, need of the writer. Good, bad, need of the editor, need of the writer. Like, how do you, do you have to toggle? Can you compartmentalize? How do you really get through that? It's like there's a mini me on my shoulder. And yes, it's so funny because <laughs> so many of my, uh, the authors that I work with talk about me as a mini me. They're always like, oh, yeah, you know, after we finished book two, then I started to hear you all the time. It's like you're sitting on my shoulder while I'm writing and going, oh, no, don't go down that hallway because that's going to lead you nowhere. This is where the story is. Oh, stay away from that. Change the plot here. And they can actually hear me giving notes before I've given them. Which is <laughs> like when you think about it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's very strange. Uh, but I guess I do have my own little mini me on my shoulder all the time as I write. Right. Is this enough or is it too much? Um, is the story moving? I need to make something happen here. I, if I'm getting bored, the reader is bored. I'm literally saying those things in my own ear. Fascinating. As I write. What about you two? Does that, do you do that or no? No. I mean, oh, as, no. Th there's a little bit of an editor, but because I'm not an editor, mostly what I think is I bet my editor will say this, or I bet my agent will say this. But I don't have a mini me doing it because I'm not good at that. How about you, Kristen? I don't have it happen to me during the writing process, but more and more over over the years, it happens to me very clearly in the editing process before I've turned it in. I've been with the same editor, Abby Zeidel, um, since I 2000. I love Abby. Love she her. She is the best. She's the best. I, I'm, I don't know what I would ever do if, if she ever left me. Like it, I, I, We are just joined at the hip and I rely on her so much. But you know, when I turned in my last novel, she said, well, this is the cleanest manuscript you've ever turned in. And I said, because you've already edited it. Because like... <laughs> I mean, because she was like sitting on my shoulder the entire time. So I knew exactly what she meant. <laughs> yep. Okay. So yeah, this is a phenomenon. See it people, we are all crazy. All writers are slightly mad. That is the moral of the story indeed. All right. Now, speaking of the madness of writers, Nita, I know this one is just now out. Uh, it is early to be asking you this, but have you thought about whether there might be a third novel about the one of a kind Molly Gray? I have certainly thought about it. And, you know, it feels like deja vu when I finish The Maid going, oh, well, how do I do this? Well, I can't do this again unless I figure out a way. And I, I'll say the same thing again. I won't deliver a book three unless I can figure out a way, but it is possible. Um, on the other hand, I would love to explore different characters, different places, maybe different genres as well. Ooh, okay. um, so it's entirely possible that we'll see something new, but uh, it's also equally possible that eventually at some point we'll see a return of Molly. E either I way, so. England, England should roll out the welcome mat for your next, <laughs> <laughs> next visit of inspiration, right? <laughs> true, very true. <laughs> so, Nita, we could do this for hours, but for now, we cannot thank you enough for giving us a glimpse into your work and your life. We truly appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we are both so excited for listeners to get their hands on the mystery guest. Thank you, thank you to both of you. Uh, this is such a delight and a pleasure to have two of my favorite authors here talking with me. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And I hope we'll actually see each other sometime soon on the, on, out there in publishing world. In the real world. I yeah. would love that. Patty, we need to take a trip up to Canada, you and I. We do. Oh my goodness. 
Yes. Nita, could you arrange that for us, please? Could you make? Sure, will, could you tell the publishing house they need us to come up there? It, it's an absolute necessity. Um, we do need a tour here, and uh, <laughs> we will have dinner at my house for sure. And we will annoy everybody because the only thing we'll be talking about uh, are other writers and books. There we go. There we go. I'm in. I am so in. Nita, I will echo Kristen's thanks. We have loved having you. And a huge thank you to all of you out there, our listeners. We love that you tune in to meet our fascinated and talented guests every single week. For a copy of The Maid or The Mystery Guest, visit our friendsinfictionbookshop.org store and receive a discount while helping indie bookstores. You can find out more about Nita, including her upcoming tour dates, at nitapros.com. That's P-R-O-S-E. And you can follow her on Instagram and on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at at nitapros. Be sure to check out more about us and our friends and fiction community at friends and fiction, spell out the word and, dot com. We are so grateful you are here. Tune in next week and bring a friend along. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.